revival. You know, it's interesting. Um, the Americans, um, I have to be careful, Dr. Horn is up there, I notice. Uh, <laughs> however, um, they, they all kind of put the charismatic move uh, onto Azusa Street um, and Seymour because of it's politically correct to have a one-eyed Afro-American as the revivalist. Um, but it's not true. Azusa Street happened in 1906. Uh, Seymour went down, was taught by Parnham in Kansas, uh, and they've built up a mythology, um, really, that's false. And this book in, on the Welsh Revival is an excellent book. Um, it was published first in 1860. Uh, you need to get history. Uh, uh, America hasn't got history. I mean, they've only been going 200 years, or whatever it is, maybe 230. How, how long have they got? Not long. They, they always look. The, 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 the revivals, charismatic revivals, have been throughout the ages. Uh, the first generation Quakers, very first generation Quakers, knew all the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, a lot of the Methodists moved in all the gifts of the Spirit. So their claim uh, to everything, but really you have to feel sorry for them because they, they, they believe that they are, you know, kind of the founders of the world. They invented the wheel um, and all those other things. And um, I, when I go over there, I'm amazed how ignorant they are of history. Uh, they just, well, I suppose because they don't have any. Um, and we need to be clear about the historical facts. Uh, because when people talk to you and ask you questions, uh, they make out that somehow what we're preaching is something new. We're not. We're just preaching what was always preached in Acts of the Apostles, we, and it's been throughout church history. There was a um, what people want to call dark ages, um, but they weren't that dark because you still had day and night, and God was moving, and has always had a remnant. There's never been a time when God has been without a people in the earth who have lived in righteousness and true holiness and known the power of the Spirit. It's just that the mythology is built up. Uh, there was only a rushing mighty wind on the day of Pentecost. And that was significant. It was like a mighty rushing wind, should I say, uh, the noise. It wasn't actually one. Um, there's lots of mythology over that, as I've said before. Uh, there's a myth that the disciples were locked up in the upper room through fear of the Jews. Well, that's a lie. Um, it says in Luke's gospel that they were in the temple daily rejoicing in God. And, and so they never were in fear once Christ was risen. Uh, and a lot of the Pentecostal teaching is totally false. And, so, and the idea that somehow God's doing a new thing, well, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, so... If there's nothing new under the sun, and the sun's been shining all the time, 
it's, it's kind of a mythology that's built up. And people are always wanting something new. Wesley, uh, John Wesley said, if it's new, it's wrong. And I think that's probably quite a good touchstone. If it's new, it's wrong. Uh, in his day, it was the New Jerusalem, it was restoration of the tabernacle of David. You can go back, and all the errors, and it's interesting, if you go back into the Quakers, first-generation Quakers, and you'll find in Robert, Robert Barclay's apology, which he wrote, he was first-generation Quaker, he wrote um, explaining how these people that claimed to be apostles weren't apostles, and how the whole mythology... Um, of, you know, the prophets and um, they, the fivefold ministry was a myth because truly we're like Christ. There's prophets, priests, and kings. Threefold, not fivefold. And um, when you start looking at history and you realize four and five hundred years ago they were having the same problems we're having today with people jumping up and thinking they've got some new revelation and it's a new move of God, you realize that's happened all through the centuries. And in the Bible school, I'm hoping that you're learning that amongst other things. Um, you've got to learn. And history is a part of it. Um, take history out of life. And basically, you have no touchstone because you might as well take the Bible out because that's history. Uh, and we, we need to know. We need to know what has happened through history. But then we need to understand that there's nothing new under the sun. God's the same. God in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. And his love is the same. His power is the same. His gifts are the same. And 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ moved, and healed the sick and delivered the captive. He's the same Jesus. There is nothing new. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come and the Holy Spirit was poured out, he never left. From that day on, he's been here. There is never a sense of him leaving. Uh, so all the mythology about moves of God is what, uh, what it is, mythology. The basic thing a Christian needs to understand, I like what Dr. Hayden said, uh, when you're filled with the Holy Ghost and you're truly born from above and you have new life, you have new life. There's no more. You can't have more life than life. And if you have Christ living within, you're alive. And if you haven't, you're dead. Even though you think you're alive. And there is no deeper life as I said, when I was up in Yorkshire, people were talking about deeper life experiences. I said, well, get a shovel and dig a hole. You'll have a deeper life. There's a lot of notion about um, the idea of uh, going on with God. And I've explained to you, and you can get hold of the tape because I've preached it so many times. There's, there's stages of growth. Uh, you remember there's brephos, which is just having power of breath. Uh, and, and that's described in the scripture 
as out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And, and the word there is brephos in the Greek. And you'll understand that then you come to what I call the nappy stage, nappios, uh, you know, where to desire the sincere milk of the word. Um, and each stage in the Greek is very specific. And then there's Padian and Technion, which is young men. In 1 John, it talks about we've overcome the wicked one. And then, of course, there's a fourth stage, which is Huios, which is a mature son. They that are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Uh, that's in Romans. But you'll find that it's no good as a Brephos thinking you're a Huios. And it's no good reading the Scriptures and saying, Ah, I'm led by the Spirit of God. If you're a babe in Christ, you're not. Because that didn't refer to a babe in Christ. It referred to a son, mature son. And so often I find that Christians, especially um, students and young Christians, they come into life, they get an experience of the Holy Ghost, and then they think they're mature. But they're not. They've got to grow up, and it takes time to grow. Have you noticed that? Um, you don't have a baby one week, and you've got a mature child the next week, do you? But why is it that in spiritual things, that's how we treat people? Um, so often, um, people are trying to be adults who are babes in Christ. Or they're just young men. They're just learning how to get victory for themselves. Well, if you're just learning how to get victory in your own life, you're not going to be very good at bringing victory into other people's lives because you haven't really learned to live in the fullness of victory in your own life. You can talk theories, but you can't talk practice. And so often what's happened, people aren't aware of the different stages in Christian life. And because the Greek language is very different from the English, English use babes, sons, children, um, the Greek's very specific. You can't teach people what you haven't got. You can't give what you haven't got. You've got to grow up. Now, there's one thing about children and young people is... Uh, Thank God we don't have it in the church, but generally speaking, there's a rebellion against parents. It's fostered by peer group pressure in schools. It's wrong, but that's the way it is. And there's an idea that, you know, generations are moving on. And the truth is they're not. And it's wrong. And they disobey parents, they disobey, they have no respect for authority, they have no respect for things. And it's terrible when that creeps into the church of Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be there at all. Um, because we should teach our kids the principles of God. And we do. But what happens is this idea that uh, there's, with every generation, there's a new truth needed. And that's what's being propagated by some evil men. But the gospel doesn't change. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That's why I loved seeing dear old Billy Graham. 
Now, people might not understand it, but Billy Graham, I saw him at his 80th birthday, I think it was, uh, and there he was, and you could look back in 1947, he was preaching the gospel. They showed him at 1950, they, you know, through his life, and goodness me, in 1996, he was still preaching the same message, and people were still getting saved the same way. The gospel does not change. Now, man would like it to change because man wants it to accommodate their culture, but who cares about culture? Certainly not God, because culture's pretty sick, whatever culture it is. And um, we need to face that. We really do. And we need to understand the gospel. And what I was talking about on Sunday night is so important to understand what the gospel is. And I actually didn't finish Sunday night. I, I skipped uh, quite a bit because, you know, um, to me, if you take away the Bible, it's the touchstone of everything. There's a lot of these little house groups with freaky leaders in this country who, who are chasing after one gimmick and another gimmick and another gimmick. They're trying to control people's lives. They're trying to interfere. And it's wrong. Jesus Christ has come to be our Lord. There's only one Lord. And when the church begins to go beyond the realm that it was given. Uh, and you remember I taught some time ago, there's four definite biblical realms um, in the Bible. Uh, and there's a realm of the church in which the pastor and the leaders are responsible. There's the realm of the family. And in the family, the head of the home is the husband. That's God's order. Not the wife, the husband. Now that is biblical. And it's because a woman is a weaker vessel. Now I know that some of you will find that hard to believe. Um, they say it, but God says it, so it must be true. I'm going to weightlifting classes. Um, must be true. And society says, no, they're, they're equal. No, they're not. They never will be. You can't take away God's principles. You can't, because of our culture, say, no, that's not true. It's true. And the man should be the head of the home. And then you've got in work, in business, the boss is the boss. Now, strangely enough, God looks on the boss as responsible for the people he employs. But that's God's order. You're to obey your boss. And not as man pleases. With eye service, in other words, only working when he's around and he can see what you're doing. You're meant to work all the time. And everything you do, you're meant to do as unto the Lord. And then there's the judges and such like, which are appointed. 
Uh, now, a pastor has no right to interfere in a home at all because that's not his jurisdiction. His jurisdiction's the church. Now, if the family wants some help, fine. Or they'll get, um, they can be admonished if they're going against the biblical principles. But basically, the husband has a responsibility. And you can't get around it. That's the way it is. Now, in the workplace, a pastor has no right to interfere. The workplace is the boss. He's God's appointed. And then in the courts, it's the judge, isn't it? He says what goes. Now, what's happened is that in discipleship groups, the pastor kind of gets into every area. He should mind his own business. My calling is to preach in the church. That's enough. Well, the church was never meant for that. The church is for the proclamation of Jesus Christ to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ and to proclaim the gospel and to win people to the truth. But the church is never to be uh, taken over the world. Look, it, it, Jesus said, if my kingdom of the, was of this world, then would my servants fight. It's not. We're not trying to establish uh, God's kingdom. We don't have to. Because his kingdom's well established. And we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. It's established in you. And it's established in anyone. It's the individual who becomes a member of that kingdom. When I see the... Um, the church really going away from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and trying to involve itself. And, and the reason is because they don't know the power of God. Because if they knew the power of God, they wouldn't want to get involved in the other things. Hey, people need healing. They need deliverance. They need life. What they don't need is interference. See, when God really gets hold of someone, God does the transformation. And if God doesn't get hold of them, it won't happen. And I'm a great believer in the sovereignty of God. Uh, if you want to know, I'm totally Calvinist. I've always been Arminian. And I like Spurgeon. Spurgeon used to say, if the elect had a yellow stripe up their back, he would have lifted their shirt tails to see who the elect were. But because they don't, he preaches whomsoever will may come and the elect respond. All right? I, I believe in it. I, I believe there's an election. I believe that I was always called of God before I was in my mother's womb. See? My name was written... In the Lamb's Book of Life, before the foundation of the world. Hey. It was all done. Do you know, everything was done and God had it all set out because he foreknew everything. And I'm a great believer in the foreknowledge of God. I don't see any contradiction in it. And 
free will because God knows what choices you're going to make down the road. God's God, isn't he? Huh? And it's wonderful. I find it so simple. People want to make, you know, big theological debates about it. There is no debate. I just happen to believe what God says. And nothing's contradictory. It's complementary. But people don't understand that. And so what I was talking about of what Jesus did, I mean, I had a young man and he started arguing that Jesus had been fasting since the resurrection. He was in heaven, not eating anything, until we were all glorified. He was on a fast. He'd rested one scripture where Jesus talked to the disciples. He wouldn't drink the, the um, wine till he drank it with them in the kingdom. Well, of course, if that were so then the redemption isn't complete. But redemption was complete at Calvary. Jesus said it's finished. And though he ever lives to make intercession for me, it doesn't mean that it's the kind of intercession that the church has taken on, which is nothing to do with intercession. It's mass emotional hysteria. Uh, true intercession is Jesus is my advocate. And what is he pleading? He's not pleading my cause. He's appearing before God, to, before God for me. And what he's saying is, Father, I paid the price for that one. That's all he's saying. And Father agrees with him. And I happen to have the son fighting on my side. Um, he's God's favorite, is this son, and it's for me. And there's no sense in which he's begging, because it's righteousness, it's just. Justice divine, it says, has been satisfied. And you have to understand, um, Jesus is not pleading. He doesn't need to. What he does is he just expresses the truth to Father. Said it's all done. That's why miracles happen. That's why healing happens. That's why deliverance happens. There is no sense in which there is any atoning work done beyond what has already happened on Calvary. Hey, it was all done 2,000 years ago. When your sin was paid for on Calvary's tree, it was finished. Don't ever let anyone tell you it wasn't. It is. And that's in Hebrews, and that's where we were at. Do you remember? I've just, just kind of done a recap, see? Because it stirs me up. And we were down in Hebrews 9. Let's go to Hebrews 9. Got to look at your Bible. Okay, let's look at this.
verse um, 22 says of, of Hebrews 9 says this, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there's no remission. Okay? It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now Jesus is risen and he appears in the presence of God for us. Now he entered into a holy place that isn't made with hands. That, that means, it, look, <laughs> understand this. If you're one of these restoration of, of David's tabernacle and, and you're going to the extremes of it, then you'll start believing, you know, the nonsense. I, I had a fax of someone asking me to pray for Israel. Well, oh, very good, you know, praying for Israel. I mean, I'm not against praying for Israel because the Jewish people were God's people. I don't have a problem with that. But I have a problem when they get a fixation about it. Because quite frankly, um, it's the dispensation of the Gentiles, isn't it? And if you read Romans, you'll find out now, we've been grafted in, haven't we, to the vine. Do you remember? Now, here's someone who's writing to me. Now, it's naturally some people from America um, gone to Jerusalem and set up this big thing, and now they're all wanting to get it, all the Jews saved. But it becomes a fixed fixation. Is it the Holy Land? Well, no, it's not holy land at all. It's the land where they trampled the blood of the Son of God under their feet. It's the land where they rejected him. Now, do I blame the Jews? No, because it, he suffered for our sin, for the sin of the whole world. But what I do know is this, that most of the sites, and I've been there, are sites. Um... I've been where they say it was Caiaphas's house underneath the church, and they show you a cell where they supposed you. I, I, I'm sorry, when I went there, it was not impressive because they were all shrines and, and all kind of horrible churches and all, you know, and, and people. Oh, they were trying to flog you things all the time. And, and I look, the only nice thing was. I like walking on the shores of Galilee because man couldn't mess that up. Uh, you know, water's water, isn't it? Not much, you can't do much with water. Uh, and so Galilee is nice, the Sea of Galilee. I enjoyed being there. But the rest of it was a pile of old stones and junk and mythology. Now, was Jesus there? Sure he was there. Did he walk those shores? Sure he did. But I didn't meet Jesus there. He lives in me. Um, I would rather have an experience of God than go to where people are just making money out of it. 
uh, Golgotha. I don't know whether it's the right place or the wrong place, but they made a shrine of it. They've made a garden. They've got a tomb which they say, I don't believe he was ever lay there. Interesting. I, I, I drove round there. I went to Masada. I looked. I mean, I've been all these places, but I want to tell you one thing. It's more important that you have the gospel and know Jesus Christ living in you. But anyway, I want to get back to the scripture here. <laughs> Four. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that we should, he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, or the end of the age as it is, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered, once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, who's going to appear to us if we look for him? Jesus. Jesus is the one who does it. Hey, he's the one who did it all. It's nothing to do with... with uh, and so often I, I, I find people have uh, made it so complicated. It's over. It's finished. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And you remember verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. That means hold it firmly. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now when you've got a time of need, you don't come begging, you come boldly. There's a great difference between a beggar and a bold person, isn't there? There's a great difference. It's attitude. Uh, the reason I come boldly is because I know this Jesus, he... he, he He's paid the price for me. That everything, I have boldness because I know that God is on my side. God's for me. I have boldness because I know that Jesus is in, intent on me, body, soul, and spirit being well. I have boldness because I believe what God says, that Jesus is entered into heaven for me. I have boldness because I know that he's put away sin. And it's over. 
I have boldness because I believe what he did is true. And so my whole life is, is not the kind of prayers that you hear in churches. My life is built on a different thing, built on bold. I think it's great, don't you? Come before his presence with boldness. There are a lot of people, oh, you know, well, I'm not sure you, well, if it's your will, God. But I, I can be bold. Christianity is for bold people, brave people. Not for people who are always nervous, always withdrawn, always crying. Look, um, it says, let us therefore. Now the therefore speaks of what? We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. Hey, Jesus understands our weaknesses. Jesus understands our, our kind of problems. If you've got problems in your life, Jesus understands. He's not somehow um, distant. He understands what man goes through. He really does. He understands the way you tick. He took, God took humanity and the form of humanity. There's nothing he doesn't understand. And that's why I can have boldness. The therefore always refers to what went before. And you need to look back and say, well, what is it? But was in all points tempted like as we. Do you know, Jesus was tempted in all points like we are. But sin is very simple. There's only the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's it. They're the three sins, aren't they? Now, every sin falls into those categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You will never find any sin outside of them. And he was tempted. Devil came along, didn't he? Tried it. Tried the pride of life, taking him up to the pinnacle of the temple, saying, cast yourself off. It's written. How about falling down and worshipping me? Then I'll give you everything. See? He showed him all the kingdoms. Lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh. Well, he tried to turn, said, turn the stones into bread. That's how he was tempted, like we are. There are lots of people are caught in those three things. And those are the only problems in life. Now, God has made a way for each of those problems to be dealt with in your life. Some of the ways are not very comfortable. For instance, I'll give you a for instance, I don't talk about it much, but for instance, the lust of the flesh. Do you know, do you know one of the things that is the root of all evil? What? What? Love of money. Love of money. Now I find people that love it the most are the poorest. That's always the way. See? Because money does most for poor people. You know? 
That's why Jesus always explained, those that are forgiven most love most. And when money does a lot more for a poor person than it does for a rich person, doesn't it? Hmm? You see, God thought, now there's a way to deal with that. It's called tithing. Now, I'm surprised at the number of people that know it's a biblical principle but never do it. And it's nothing to do with Old Covenant. It's to do... Abraham, before the Old Covenant was, was invented, Abraham did it. He tied to Melchizedek. Gave him a tenth to the priesthood. Um, so Abraham did it before the Old Covenant ever came about. But it's a nice bolt hole if you're a lover of money. And there's nothing worse for someone that loves money. And money, you don't love money itself like the pound note. You love what it does. Isn't that right? And it's amazing how people get caught up in deception. You see, the way to get rid of the love of money is to go God's route. God lays the axe to the root of the tree. And the root of the tree is one-tenth of your income belongs to God. And he says, if it doesn't, you're a thief. You're robbing God. That's it. And then he says, will a man rob God? Oh, yeah, people say. But, you know, that's old covenant. No. That's God's principle. Now, do I need to tithe in order to be spiritual? No. Or to be saved? No. But I tell you, to walk in life, yes, you do. To be blessed of God, yes, you do. Why? Let's look at the reasons why. Turn with me to Malachi. Turn with me to Malachi. Okay? And I'll repeat this. Where's that little, I'm looking for a little scripture. Oh, look, people say to me, oh, it's only in James it says God doesn't change. But look, verse 6 of Malachi 3, what does it say? 
I am the Lord. What? He, he what? I change not. Um, so often I find people turn around and, and what they want to do, they want to change things. Now he says, I change not. All right? Then, go on, let's look. Even from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Now, hey, just a minute. I pointed out one time, and I want to make this plain to you. All over the world, people think revival comes in a person's life from fasting and praying and seeking God. And, you know, praying through... It doesn't. My Bible says totally the contrary. You see, the root of all evil is money. Loving it. Not just money, but loving it. And here he goes on, and he says this. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say... Wherein have we robbed thee? And then he says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now here he's talking to a nation, he says, return to me. You've left me. Now, strangely enough, it's not sin that's a problem in the sense of they've gone off to other gods. It's money. The issue's money. It's tithing. Now, people wouldn't say, well, the lust of the flesh. But do you realize most of your life is given up to making money, isn't it? When you go to work, you don't work for nothing, do you? Huh? So you give your life for money, don't you? Huh? And you want to hold on to it, don't you? Every penny. Hmm? But God says, hey, just a minute. I have a claim. People don't like that. And so he says, look, will a man rob God? Well, would you rob God? Would you? Would you rob God? Are you sure? And then they say, well, how have we robbed you? How have we robbed you? You know, you say we've gone away, God, how have we robbed you? No, it's easy because the human heart's deceitfully wicked above everything, isn't it? Hmm? Well, isn't it? You know, it is. And God says, you robbed me, you went away from me. Now, I didn't write this book. I just happened to believe it. And God says he doesn't change. So if you think God's going to change this bit of the Bible, I've got news for you. It ain't going to happen. Because he knows your propensity. And you get un when people in the church talk of money, everyone gets uncomfortable. Now, I don't do it much. In fact, I... I I can think, I've probably done it 10 times in 23 years.
But one thing that does occur to me, a lot of you get impoverished because you don't do what God says. You want to know you can, you can actually obey your way out of poverty. Or you can make poverty your friend by loving money. That's how you get poor. They're principles. Just either you obey them or you don't. Goes on, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. Now if God's cursing you, you're in trouble. Hmm? If God's cursing the work of your hands, your hands are not going to produce much. Isn't that right? Even this whole nation. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Hey, have you ever thought this? Has it got anything to do with prayer? How do you get the windows open? By doing what God says. And people think the windows of heaven are shut up because they haven't prayed enough. Nothing to do with praying enough. It's because you've never dealt with the thing that's really gripping your life, which is the lust of the flesh. Money controls you. Money grips you. And hey, the one thing you need to break in your life is the control of money. It's the most evil, insidious thing when you love it. And you put that above God. And God says, hey, I've made a way you can break that power. That demon can't be in your life. Boom. Now that's easy, isn't it? People don't like that. He says, look, see, prove me now herewith. You see, you, if you don't do the here with, then you'll never prove God. I want to challenge God. I want you to challenge God. You prove God and see if he won't do it. You want God to bless you abundantly? Here's the way to do it. The biblical way. Huh. Uh, it doesn't say I'll open the windows of the bank. No, no, no. It's the windows of heaven that open. Now if God was going to drop down the streets of New Jerusalem, they'd knock you flat because they're made of gold. That's not what it's about. It's blessing. Blessing from heaven. You see, you're depriving yourself of blessing from heaven because of love of money. It's called idolatry. People don't love. They love their car more than they love God. Why? They spend more on their car and they won't give to God what's rightfully his. 
They love their home more than they love God. And then when things go wrong in their business, they say, oh, you know, I can't afford to. But you can't afford not to. Because the windows of heaven don't open up unless you fulfill God's herewith. And herewith is your tithes and offerings. (laughs) And you're a fool if you think that God's going to do it some other way for you. Now what is a tithe? A tithe is one-tenth. One-tenth of your income. Now that doesn't mean the income that's left over when you've spent everything you can on yourself. It doesn't mean what is left over after you've deducted your mortgage, your housekeeping, your tax, your, your national insurance, your everything. Take it all off and then say, well, I'll give God a tenth of what's left after the housekeeping's gone. No, it means a tenth of your income. What comes in, one-tenth belongs to God. And he said, if you keep it, you're in trouble. You're robbing me and you're cursed with a curse. Now what is the curse? The curse is the windows of heaven are shut to you. The problem is financial. See, people don't, they they love it to be some demon. It is. It's the demon of the love of money. It's called you. See? The demon, put your hand on your chest, say, the demon that's troubling me is me. (laughs) Not not some gobbledygook up in the air, it's you. So, here's how it goes, look. This is what it says. I didn't write it. Just a believer. It says this. I will open, will it, see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Whew. Now, is that a blessing? Is that a blessing? Is that a blessing? I tell you, that is a blessing. Isn't it? Now, you won't find that promise anywhere else. Like that. What a blessing, God says. You see, because the work of God goes on in financial stability. Not in financial poverty. Now God's laid away. Now if you defy God's way, I'll tell you, you're cursed with a curse. Now don't you think you can work your way out of it? You won't. Because when God curses you and shuts up the windows of heaven, they remain shut, double glazed. No drips. <laughs> That's it. Not aluminium double glazing. That's condensation dripping on you. Nothing. But when a person realizes his real problem is love of money, 
then his life changes. Hey, I mean, you can't take it with you, can you? Huh? There are no pockets in a shroud, is there? Hmm? Unless you're Chinese, and then they put it in your coffin with you. Fat lot of God that is when you're buried, and it's decomposing, and you are. And anyway, the ice cream man doesn't turn up, does he, when you're in there? And if he did, you couldn't do anything about it. Money. Money. Years ago, I learned a principle. It's amazing how many people will... will I sold my car years ago. This was 30-odd years ago. I wanted to buy another car. I sold my car for cash. And I wanted to buy another one. But what I did, because, it, you know, I sold it. So I said, well, one-tenth of the proceeds is God. So I just gave it away. I said, but you had to buy another car. Yeah. But it was income. Hmm? I'm surprised how many people neglect the principles of God in their lives or, or they, they negotiate their way so they can give the minimum. It's called love of money. You end up with an inheritance. You didn't do anything for the inheritance, but one-tenth of it belongs to God. You earn your salary... One-tenth, God didn't do anything to earn your salary, but one-tenth of it belongs to God. One tenth, that means a hundred pounds, ten pounds is God's. And if you take it, you rob him. Now God said, look, I'm going to pour you out a blessing that there's not going to be room to contain. Now that's windows of heaven. This is a spiritual, this is not financial. Okay? Don't ever get the idea, if you give to God, you're going to get. That is not what it's about. That is deception. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the windows of heaven. Okay? I want to tell you, when you get to heaven, you'll find there's no taxi drivers. Going to drop your tip. They're in. See? It's blessing. Now, God says that's the way it is. But then he goes on. Thank God he goes on. He says, look, there's going to be such a blessing in your life. Do you know, if you want a real spiritual blessing in your life, straighten up. Live right. Stop running God. Return to him and say, God, I'm going to put things right. That's the way it is. God doesn't need your prayers. Because your prayers cost you nothing. Hello? But dealing with the love of money and the idolatry in your life will cost you something, won't it? 
Easiest thing to do is go and spend two hours praying. That costs you nothing at all, does it? It just means you don't get on doing what you should do, generally. And you call it spiritual. Okay. Then he goes on. He said there's going to be... And then he said, verse 11, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy, that's corrupt, the fruit of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast a fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, delightful land, saith the Lord of hosts. Hey, God says, look, there is going to be a benefit. I'm going to stop the devourer from messing up your life. I'm going to stop the devourer from getting in and messing up your business, messing up what you do. He's not going to get in anymore. Why? Because I'm going to rebuke him. And I'm going to make sure that what you give yourself to do, you'll get the fruit of it. But, the trouble is, people don't get it because they've been cursed with a curse and the curse isn't broken because they won't return to God. Because they love money. And they all have their logic and their reason and they're going to explain it. You know, well, I can't afford to tithe. We can't afford not to, friend. If you want the windows of heaven to open. Now, I'm just saying, that's the way it is in the Bible. Well, you can do what you like with it. Verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and them that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Well, that's easy, isn't it? Hmm? Well, I mean, is that what the Bible teaches? Huh? Now, let me go on to some other things. Because now it stirred me up. I don't know, I didn't, I came here thinking about Hebrews, but there we are. Um, let me explain something to you. If you withhold your tithe, you have to redeem it with double. That's what the Bible says. 
Read Leviticus. Huh? Now God's promised blessing. Now it's suicide to rob God, isn't it? Well, does God know what's going on? Does God see? Do his eyes wander to and fro throughout the whole earth? Well, there you are. If I earn 10,000 a year, what's a tithe? What? When's it due? When's it due? When I get it. When it's in my greasy palm, one-tenth of it belongs to God. Is that right? Huh? Now, how many people sit down and say, well, this month I've got this month, one-tenth of that's God's? Or something happens and you go out and you do one-tenth of that. Just God's. I mean, that's a principle, isn't it? And God says, if you don't do that, you rob me. And you say, where in have we robbed? Tithes. Now there's offerings on top, isn't there? Did you notice that? The tenth belongs to God. You haven't given anything to God if you give him what's his. You haven't, you know... That's just God's, because God says it's his. Now, why did he choose a tenth? And a tenth isn't one percent. And a tenth isn't two percent, or four percent, or five percent. A tenth is what? Hmm? Ten percent. See, now, he would rebuke the devourer and make sure your fruit didn't perish, and that people didn't do your dirty deals, and things didn't go wrong, but it's only on condition. And the condition is, you fulfill his conditions, not yours. If I invest some money, and I get interest, one-tenth of it belongs to God, doesn't it? Hmm? Well, doesn't it? For instance, I'll give you a for instance, in my own person, I, I, I saved up, I had an insurance policy, uh, and I've got old enough for it to be cashable. You wouldn't believe it, you know, but last year it became cashable. Well, we wanted a tenth, so I, I think it was 10,000 or 12,000 stuck towards the marquee. Well, it was, I think, half of it. Why? Well, what else was I going to do with it? Now, that's me. That's my choice. When we bought this place, I sold my home. We put all, everything into it. Why? Because I believe in it. You say, well, that's more than a tenth. Yeah, but I like the windows of heaven open for me. Now, the money isn't for the pastor. Don't say that, it's for the priesthood. It's for the ministry. So there's meat in the house. 
See, God doesn't like milk, he wants meat. Hmm? Now, what a promise of God. He said, I'll open a window. Did you realize you could have the windows of heaven open in your life and there'd be so much blessing in your life there wouldn't be room to contain it? I'll tell you what, other people would get saved. You'd stop spending all your concentration on me, 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 and you'd start realizing God wanted to bless other people. The reason so many people are so ineffective with evangelism is the windows of heaven have never opened in their life because they won't fulfill the principles of God. And therefore they're cursed with a curse. Do you know, the poorest people are the people that save most. They're poor. The richest people are the ones that give most. Because, you see, God comes number one. You can do without things in your life, but you can't do without God. And if you have God in your life, and you have blessing that there's not room to contain, I want to tell you, he'll rebuke the devourer. He'll make sure things go, and I tell you, you violate that principle and you get a curse. Not that God's wanting to curse you, it's just that the curse comes that the devourer's there and he don't rebuke him. And the windows of heaven remain shut. And it's lonely down here without God, isn't it? Hmm? It's a principle. I find people work out a tithe and you find five years later they'd still be paying the same tithe. And you wonder, well, what's happened? Well, inflation, their wages went up. But God's importance in their life remained the same. But then they began to systematically rob him. And then they said, I can't understand why God doesn't bless me. Well, there's some things they don't tie. You know, you find a husband and wife go out to work. Well, if a husband goes out to work and a wife goes out to work, well, each should tie, shouldn't they? Each is responsible, aren't they? Huh? My kids tied their pocket money. And you, one-tenth of what they got belonged to God. I wanted them to grow up knowing principles. Why? Because I wanted God's heavenly windows open to them. And I like it that the, when, when God rebukes the devourer, you'll find your business goes sweet. When the devourer's there, he'll finish it off. I mean, God, God knows this. I'll tell you what, things can go wrong in your life and, and all sorts of things can fall apart, can't they? Cars can break down. Lots of things can happen. And it's real painful. And the reason it's painful is the old devourers around there and your, your money bags have holes in. No matter how hard you work, you never go anywhere. reason you don't get anywhere is because you're robbing God and God's cursed you with a curse and nothing you do is going to succeed that well. <coughs> then you look and you say, hey, this isn't the right way to live. 
But you tell people that, and they sit there and they say, oh, yes, yes, yes. But they don't do anything about it. That's why God says, return to me. People won't do it. Tell them they still won't do it. They can see the windows of heaven will open, but they don't really want them to open. Because if they did, they'd do what was right. Hmm. Well, that's plain, isn't it? Then people come to me and they say, is it net or gross? See? What an attitude. Well, when you pay tax, do you get any benefit from the tax you pay? Do you get any benefit from the tax you pay? What benefit do you get? Roads. Who pays for the roads you drive on? I mean, all the, all the infrastructure of our society comes out of the tax we pay, doesn't it? You've got, you know, you've got all sorts of benefits. Now, if you've got the benefits, hey, <coughs> then that's income. Don't be stupid about it. That is income. You say, no, I paid it to the tax man. Yeah, well, then live in, go and live in an igloo. I mean, you're getting income out of it, aren't you? You're getting all the benefits. Who pays for the library you go and visit? Who pays for the bus stops so you can stand there and wait for a bus that never comes? Who pays for the transport service that you won't use because it's too dangerous? Who pays? But they're benefits, aren't they? Who, who pays for the road sweeper and the dustman that comes to get your rubbish? All the stuff that keeps breaking because you're cursed with a curse. And a devourer goes, <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how he laughs. <laughs> no, ha, ha, ha. Couldn't, it's not, it's nasty, sneaky laugh. <laughs> and then you go to cook the dinner and the kids distract you and suddenly there's all this black smoke coming up and you burnt the food and you have to go... <laughs> Why the devourers there? Things happen. God said, I'll rebuke the devourer. None of those things touch you. I believe it. That's, that's lust of the flesh. You want a blessing? Read that when you get home. Malachi 3, and say, hey... I want the windows of heaven open for me. God tells you exactly how to get them open. And strangely enough, it's not by speaking in tongues for two hours a day. It's not by fasting and praying, is it? Is this what it says? Say the same in your Bible? Is it true? I find 
biggest thing outside, you know, Christians, biggest thing outside, oh, they're after your money. No, 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 no. You haven't got enough to meet all my needs. No, I'm not after your money. God is. God is saying, hey, there's principles and you better look to them. Now, God says, return to me. That means there's got to be a sorting out. Because if the devourer's devouring and destroying your home, hey, it's time you changed. And you say, well, I can't afford to do the things I want to do. Great. Maybe the things you want to do aren't what God wants you to do. Because if God wants you to do them, he'll provide the wherewithal. Now, is that correct or not? Hmm? I tell you, one thing, it disappoints me. I see people who are blighting their own lives and and they're destroying themselves through their stupidity. Because God can count. Honey, don't need no calculator. When I find some people, they try and calculate to the penny how much they think they can get away with. Stupid. My view was it's better to give more than you're safe. You keep the windows nice and open. You have a breezy life. (laughs) Terrible. Means, I, I mean, mean spirited people. They're worried about where their old age. You should be worried if you curse with a curse. But you never run dry if you do what God says. That's the truth. That's why there's a lot of people end up in poverty and end up with nothing. They just didn't do what God said. One-tenth means, and beyond that, there's love offering. What, what are offerings? Well, I'll tell you what offerings are. If we have a visiting speaker, we want to give them a gift. We say, you know, do you want to um, make a love offering? Don't have to. Freedom of choice. But tithes and offerings are important. You have to make up your mind. Now I tell you this. You are responsible, each one of you. You can't say, well, it's my husband or it's my wife. Everyone's responsible. Before God, God will ask you. Say, well, what do you do? What are you going to say? And God turns up and says, morning, thief. So who are you talking? You. Well, someone who robs is a thief, isn't he? The only person you hurt by disobedience is yourself.
you destroy yourself. And that's a shame, because it doesn't have to be that way. But how long do you want to be cursed? It's really it. And God's not cursing you, you're cursing yourself. Because you're allowing the devourer into your life. Making mincemeat of you. God says, hey, prove me, see if I won't do something. I will rebuke the devourer. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everything you set your hand to prospered? Nothing went down. Wouldn't that be great? God says that'll happen. Says the vine won't cast its fruit before the time. Everything will work out. Suddenly your life becomes blessing instead of cursing. Suddenly everything begins to go right instead of wrong. Much better way to live. All right?